May it please the court, fellow counsel. Uh, we're here today on the appeal of a dismissal of my client's uh, copyright infringement, tortious interference with contract, and unfair competition claim against the defendant Learning Tree. I represent the plaintiff, Kendall Hunt, an Iowa-based uh, educational publisher whose ethics publication was infringed um, and whose contract was interfered with and whose business was basically un unfairly competed with uh, by the defendant. The defendant, Learning Tree... I don't Tree, understand the interference when, uh, when the, the author um, changed, changed allegiance. Now, you, you, didn't, he, didn't you have a, a contract at will, so to speak, with Bonatari? I can't, can't pronounce it. <laughs> no, yeah, no, thank you, Your Honor. Um, the contract actually isn't at will. It's a publishing contract that in did which he, the did he breach it? He did. Did you sue him? Um, not yet, but it may come to that as additional parties are added to the to the lawsuit, Your Honor. The, in, in further answer to your question, the contract has a non-competition -com clause with the author, and the author granted plenary intellectual property rights in the works at issue uh, before the court. Um, so that's the basis of the uh, tortious interference claim, Your Honor. A word about Learning Tree Press, because it's relevant to the jurisdictional question before the court. It was founded within days after um, its, its founders uh, quit um, as editors. Counsel, if, if you hold up just a minute, we, we're getting enough static in here. It's a bit distracting. Would you hold the clock? Um, I think that we've got a mic issue. Actually, um, Your Honor, I called IT and they say it's in the system and the system would need a reboot. Okay. That would take about 15 minutes. So it's. Oh. <laughs> I can speak up. Well, Mr. Gans, would you come forward, please? Uh, please uh, uh, proceed with your argument. Thank you. Um, the defendant, Learning Tree Press, uh, its only shareholders, officers, and employees are former employees of Kendall Hunt Publishing Company. They were longtime, longstanding uh, editors and managing editors responsible for the work infringed. They were responsible for contracting with the author to bring that work into Kendall Hunt's um, IP. Uh, they were responsible for the editing process with Iowa headquarters. It is true that somewhere between 15 and 20 years between the two uh, founders and principals of the Defendant Learning Tree Press, they did work for Kendall Hunt remotely out of California and did not have an office uh, in Dubuque, Iowa, which is where Kendall Hunt's uh, headquarters are located. However, um, they had, in the last two years of employment alone, thousands upon thousands of email communications with Iowa-based uh, Kendall Hunt uh, employees. Do the cases say that email contact like that interstate is sufficient for due process? It, it, in and of itself, yes. But there were, if you add up the emails, the calls, the physical visits, week-long training sessions. How, how many physical visits were there? Um, the record establishes that uh, John Coniglio, the managing editor and founder of Learning Tree Press, or one of the founders, um, starting in 1995 through, um, I think in 1995 and 1996, came for a few weeks. 
um, or no, no, 1995 through close to 2006, would come for annual trainings. Um, and then his last visit to corporate headquarters was in uh, May of 2018, and I believe he came for two days. Um, with uh, Frank Forcier, the editor uh, who reported up to John Coniglio, the managing editor, um, he came for sales training when he joined the company in 2005, uh, then I think again in 2006, and the record is silent on any further physical visits by Frank Forcier after, after those dates. Their work was heavily remote, uh, by email, by calls. Um, it was several emails, um, multiple calls on average a day for the last two years of their employment. So it's not just a few calls, it's, it's many. And, it, and those calls and emails, and we've provided some sampling of these emails, they were directly related to the works that Kendall Hunt claims were infringed in this case. There is a direct nexus. It's not emails, calls in and of themselves, I agree, Your Honor, insufficient for personal jurisdiction or to comport with due process. But where those calls and emails are inextricably tied to the causes of action and IP infringement and misappropriation alleged in the case, they are relevant and courts have considered those um, more strongly as a factor under the totality of the circumstances as is the test uh, that, that the Eighth Circuit uses How in these cases. How did the district court address the emails? Um, the district court um, said that they were, in the, not only the emails, but the communications with headquarters from California about this author's contract and about this author's work were relevant, put some weight on that, but said that the contacts were, were too tenuous or not related enough to the causes of action, which of course we disagree with and we think we were treated unfairly by the district court on that point, given that we didn't have an evidentiary hearing on any of this. At every, at every turn, we asked for a hearing to come before the court, present witnesses, present exhibits, and uh, the, the district court, in, in her discretion, which she's of course permitted to do, decided to um, enter a ruling on the motions, the resistances, the pleadings, the statements proffered, which is fine. But when a court does that, then this court, the Court of Appeals, can review that decision de novo, isn't, is, is, doesn't have to give it weight, um, and, and the, court, the district court should have given deference um, to the plaintiff asserting personal jurisdiction at this early stage. Uh, disputes of fact should have been resolved in favor of Kendall Hunt, for example. Um, where there was a conflict in the facts, you know, the marble should have rolled off Kendall Hunt's side, not Learning Tree's side. And a few times in the opinion, um, I believe it was unfairly treated as a preponderance of evidence standard. It, it's not at this stage. Um, there was no hearing. It was decided on basically on the briefs and motions and statements, again, which is fine. But, but then there's a different standard. It's not preponderance of the evidence. It's just uh, more of a plausibility or, you know, is there a prima facie showing made? And on this record, we believe that we did meet a preponderance of the evidence standard, even though we didn't get an evidentiary hearing. But we for sure and certainly um, meet the prima facie case of personal jurisdiction. Um, the judge in the Prairie Services case uh, who... In the Prairie Services case, we believe is the closest analogy to this case. It's about a, a group of employees working remotely in South Dakota for a, a company headquartered in Minnesota. They were hauling gas and fuel and other and water for the for the oil industry, I think, in the upper upper Midwest. That judge said, at this early stage, 
you just ask if there's a prima facie showing of personal jurisdiction. If the defendant, Learning Tree Press, wants to contest it through trial, I think they can. But at this early stage, when the district court decided not to have an evidentiary hearing on it, I think they made a mistake. And I think we were treated, I think my client, Kendall Hunt, was treated unfairly. So uh, there's that um, issue. Um, there's the issue on you know, the single sale, do- you know, the single sale doctrine. They did. It's undisputed that there was infringement for purposes of this proceeding. We assume that there was infringement. They did sell a work into the state of Iowa. But you don't contend that that by itself would be enough, though, do you? I don't. Con- I don't concede that, but I do concede it would be a different case. Why I don't concede it, Your Honor, is because if you look at the, at the Zizzle, I think it's called Zizzle, the Zizzle sliding, appropriate name for a sliding scale, sounds like a Zizzle. Zazzle, maybe. Z- no, well, Zazzle is the most recent court from the Eighth Circuit decided, I think, last August or September. Zippo, maybe. Zippo, yes. Yeah, thank you, Your Honor. It's a Zippo case. If you look at that sliding scale, the website that Learning Tree puts out there for their electro- electronic educational publications they're not just passive websites where people can post content. Uh-uh. It's on the interactive side. When you go on to Learning Tree's website to buy a, a book on ethics, let's say, they ask for your name. They ask for an account. You have to set up an account. A contract is formed. Payment arrangements are made. It's a fully full-on interactive website. Closer question, I agree. But we don't concede that that in and of itself wouldn't be a proper foundation for the establishment of personal jurisdiction, especially at the prima facie case or, or, or stage. Does it matter that the, the single transaction is instigated by, or at least connected to the litigation itself by yeah, it's, of the parties? It's directly related, and, and that gives more merit, more strength to the proposition that that sale of the actual infringing work into the forum jurisdiction is a proper foundation for for um, personal jurisdiction. But, Your Honor, to your initial inceptional question, that sale related, along with the totality of the circumstances and the decades of the founders' contacts, direct intentional contacts with the forum state, where they were recruiting this intellectual property, where they had access to this intellectual property, where they had access and knowledge of these contracts, in the totality of circumstances with that sale, there's just not minimum context. There's maximum context. There's maximum harm intentionally directed at the forum state. Um, and you know that's the, that's the harm analysis under the, um, under the Calder case, which I understand was caveated and qualified by the Walden case in 2014. Um, but we, 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 we see this as a fairly clear case of personal jurisdiction, and we were a little surprised after 20 pages of recitation of contacts with the forum jurisdiction that the case was dismissed, quite honestly. Um, I, I, unless there are immediate questions, well, I would I'm, reserve. I, I want to get your response to what interests me about this case. Okay. The minimum context analysis is judicial interpretation of due process rights dating for more than a century. Copyright is a a unique form of intellectual property. It is so unique and so significant that the founders put it in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And it is not locally based. It doesn't have a, 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 a tangible foundation like trademark or trade secret 
uh, all the other thing or <clears throat> the other things that are, the interference is tends to be local. Copy for a cop, to get a cop, copyright is a right granted to an author in exchange for giving the public generally access to his works, his or her works. So let's take Mickey Mouse, a copyright most in the news since it's partially expired or expiring. Uh, minimum context analysis would suggest uh, that, that, that Walt Disney in the year after he got his copyright in California would have to go to Bangor, Maine or Greenville, Mississippi or Miami, Florida or um, far north of Minnesota to sue anyone who was using Mickey Mouse just locally. That doesn't seem right to me. It seems to me that, that the, the due process analysis is, is being um, applied sort of in whole cloth where it doesn't belong. Has anyone, any case or any secondary authority to your knowledge uh, talked about that? Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I don't think they have. It's a good, I think it's a great question for well, sure. I mean, I understand why this has just been briefed and argued and decided by the district court and in traditional terms. It, it has been. But to, to your point, and, and I'd make a general point about IP, th there's this intimation, if not outright analysis, that, um, well, infringement of trademark or misappropriation of trade secret, well, that's different than infringement of copyright. I think that's a distinction without a difference. IP is resident where the owner resides. Well, but trademark use has... Is, is in a location, it, almost by definition. So when the defendant, an out-of-state defendant, um, infringes, allegedly infringes a trademark, it's doing it locally. And so why should the trademark owner, registered or otherwise, in 1,000 miles away get to drag that alleged infringer at great expense to defend in the owner's backyard? I can understand that. I think the due process element there is powerful. Copyright's different. Well, factually related to this case, I, I just make the one final comment. I mean, the district court kind of was going to this idea, well, you know, you say that the defendant, through its founders, had, while employed for decades, had access to the servers, a, a server and a software, it was publishing software called Share Room or a data room called Share Room. They had access to this work which is an element of a copyright infringement cause of action, like access. That access is tied to their contact with the forum state. It couldn't be more inextricably tied. I mean, it's perfect, you know, for a personal jurisdiction analysis. And the judge, and the judge had, the, had the comment, I think, in her opinion that, well, yeah, but, you know, they could have just gone to the library and got this book, too, out in California. Yeah, but again, that, that goes back to the unfairness in the district. But why do you assume that? I mean, isn't that a... Isn't that a conflict of fact that should have went, off, went Kendall Hunt's way? Especially when you consider the same typographical and grammatical errors as, in, as are in Kendall Hunt's native files on a server located in Dubuque, Iowa, showed up in the defendant's publication? Counsel, you're, you're about to exhaust your time. If I could give you an extra minute if you'll save a little bit <laughs> for uh, your rebuttal. Would you like that? Maybe a minute for rebuttal, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Brucon. 
or maybe Brocken. I don't know. You can tell me how it's properly. Chad Brocken, Your Honor. Right. Thank you very much. Your Honors, may it please the court. My name is Chad Brocken, and I represent the defendant, Appellee Learning Tree Publishing Corporation. This appeal presents two straightforward questions for the court to determine whether or not Learning Tree Publishing Corporation is subject to specific personal jurisdiction within the state of Iowa. That's first, whether or not a single sham transaction, sham purchase by plaintiff appellant Kendall Hunt is sufficient to establish specific personal jurisdiction over Learning Tree. I thought the nature of the claim was an essential part of the a minimum context analysis. The, the nature of the claim, Your Honor, yes. is, is absolutely an essential so part. So how can this be straightforward unless you've researched my observation and uh, it's, there's nothing to it? Thank you, Your Honor. I'll try to address that. The, there appear to be two issues that the court can resolve here on appeal. And the first is whether or not the sham transaction, the single sale, is enough to establish specific personal jurisdiction. And furthermore, uh, even if not, whether or not Kendall Hunt's uh, former remote employees, the founders of Learning Tree, uh, whether those contacts with Kendall Hunt's people while employed by Kendall Hunt um, establish specific personal jurisdiction. The, the, the Zazzle case recently uh, um, entered by this court uh, indicates, uh, at least based on the facts of those cases, a single sale, uh, which was not a sham sale or phony sale in that case, but a single sale with a, with a nationwide website was not enough to establish specific personal jurisdiction uh, in, in Zazzle. Now, looking at the minimum contacts analysis uh, of, of whether or not, nonetheless, uh, Learning Tree's founders' prior employment with Kendall Hunt would establish minimum contacts. Well, what we look at there is, is, is whether or not the defendant's contacts uh, are purposefully directed at the form state and whether they relate to the claims at issue. Do you cite a copyright case in your brief? We do, we do not. Very hard Your Honor, and, and your question was well taken for, for counsel for uh, appellant, and I, and I share uh, his position that I do no, it's, not. It's, it, I, I put that out to counsel for appellant because you're the one that would suffer from where I'm going. So your response is more important to me. Under, understood, Your Honor. And, and I don't have a specific case analysis, analyzing the the due process analysis under the... It's under the, hard, hard to even find a copyright minimum context case. It, what, what we found or saw was cases that are, are evaluating the, the trademark or other situations by looking at whether or not, and the way I would ask the okay. court to look at this. Do you have a, you have a, a copyright case to refer to me to? Uh, I do not believe. Okay, that's fine. We look quickly, and, and uh, there isn't anything that either discussed the point I'm making or did anything but generally follow minimum contact analysis, which is what's been briefed and argued and decided, and go ahead. With, go ahead with what's on the table. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and, and when looking at that second issue under the um, minimum contacts analysis, what's essential and what's important for the court is to look at 
the defendant's contacts not just with the employees of Kendall Hunt, but with the forum state. And what you'll find, and then whether or not those contacts with the forum state, with the state of Iowa, relate to the claims. And so what you'll see in the record, Your Honors, is emails. You'll see paychecks received from an Iowa bank. You'll see phone calls into the state of Iowa to Kendall Hunt employees related to their employment with Kendall Hunt. What you won't find is an allegation of any violation of an employment agreement by the former Kendall Hunt employees. Well, is there anything that indicates that clearly the number of emails and communications from California to Iowa that's a part of the record here is not sufficient to at least be a consideration for minimum contacts? What there isn't in the record, Your Honor, is any evidence that those communications were part of any improper, whether it be infringement on a copyright, interference with a contract with Professor Biamonte, or any of the elements of the claims that have been asserted in the district court. So the defendant's position would be there could be one communication with Kendall Hunt. There could be a thousand communications with Kendall Hunt. But what's relevant is whether or not those communications, whether there's evidence in the record to show that those communications related to the claims at issue. What the district court found is with respect to the claims. So the access to the copyrighted material didn't come through those communications. Is that what you're saying? There's no evidence that it did. In fact, what the district court found was that access is not in dispute. The author of the copyrighted work, Your Honor, is the same author as the alleged infringing work. So with respect to the copyright claim, there was no indication that their former employment by Kendall Hunt was necessary to obtain any copyright information. Similarly, with respect to the tortious interference with contract claim, there was no indication that any communications with Professor Biamonte took place in the state of Iowa. And there's no factual nexus between that claim and the state of Iowa. And the unfair competition claim is related or similar to the copyright and tortious interference claim. Your Honors, when looked at with the sham sale the day before the complaint, I would argue somewhat of a red herring. I don't think that's the meat of the issue for the court. The Zazzle case, I would submit, gets to a place where when you're looking at the website in Zazzle, you've got an interactive website that can be accessed from anywhere in the United States to purchase. In that case, I believe it was a shirt, I believe, in Zazzle. The website at issue by Learning Tree is fundamentally different. Learning Tree markets its online course books and textbooks to educational institutions, to professors, who ultimately then 
assign that course book or textbook to its student. Now, Learning Tree markets those to educational institutions and professors in California. It does not market those to any educational institution or professor in the state of Iowa. And then what happens after the course book is assigned to a student, the student goes to the website and the student... Do they have only application in California? Uh, You're saying they're marketed to... They market it to but professors. Are, are they, do they have a national application or an application that could work in Iowa? The, the act, the, you can access it in Iowa as, a, as Kendall Hunt uh, employee has demonstrated how to, to do so by entering in. Well, you can, when, what I'm saying is, is there, would there be a reason for an, an Iowa institution or professor to access uh, oh. the book and use it in Iowa or use the materials in Iowa. Not to my knowledge, but I don't know that that's in the record or that there's any record evidence on that point. Um, what, I, what I know is that in order to access the information, it is different than going to Amazon or going to Walmart's website. This is a situation where specific information is required to be inputted, uh, such as student ID, uh, student email address. Uh, and in fact, in order to access that information, in this case, phony information was was inserted by um, by the Kendall Hunt employee. So, with respect to whether or not the singular transaction um, would would support jurisdiction, Learning Tree's position is where the facts on Zazzle did not support jurisdiction based on the single sale, the single uh, suit sale. Uh, they would be even less. Uh, connected those those contacts that alleged sale in this case uh, would be even less connected with the forum state to establish jurisdiction here. Now, switching over to the second question, then um, Kendall Hunt's uh, former employees' contacts with the forum state um, Learning Tree uh, requests this court to look at those employees' contacts with the forum state and analyze whether or not those contacts with the forum state that are in the evidence are related to the claims at issue um, and and based on on the record evidence learning tree would would submit that they are not that the district court uh, correctly ruled that there was no why shouldn't this be issue this issue be decided under uh, 1404 a why do we need the due process clause to decide where this ought to be where the convenience and etc is the best place to try this your Honor, what's at issue? Other is, than other than you want to be out of here now, uh, or run up, or run up the cost to run up the cost of pursuing the claim. Seems to me 1404A gives the district court all of the ammunition it needs to put the the discovery and trial in the right place. I, there is, I, Your Honor, I would um, believe that a possibility uh, if the court affirms the decision of the district court, there would be a possibility that a lawsuit could be filed in the state of, in a federal court. No, no, I'm suggesting we reverse and let the district court apply 1404A uh, in its best discretion. Your Honor, this this case and the way that the Learning Tree Publishing Corporation sees this as a unconstitutional attempt to subject two former employees of Kendall Hunt to come to the state of Iowa, a place they've never uh, never worked, never lived, uh, in order to defend against claims that are unrelated to their former employment of Kendall Hunt, 
um, it uh, is, is violative of the due process clause as the uh, district court correctly ruled, and, and so dismissal uh, at the motion to dismiss stage is an appropriate remedy. But it's a judicial doctrine. I mean, it's for the courts to decide the, the proper line between the due process clause and and the convenience and convenience and transfer and venue convenience and so forth. Yeah, I, that, I, no statute covers that. You you can't read it under the, from the plain meaning of the due process clause. I, I would agree that the court has discretion, Your Honor. What I would submit is that well, it's not discretion, but it's a, it, the decision. It's a it's a, it's a judicial. Co- Principle. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, the Learning Tree Publishing Corporation would argue that in this case the the um, personal jurisdiction is absent and the case was properly dismissed, um, irrespective of other uh, opportunities for the court to address uh, grievances that may exist. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Council. Thank you for your accommodation, Your Honor. Um, just real, uh, real briefly, a point about Zazzle, just because of its proximity to this hearing and, and its uh, newness. I'll. Kendall Hunt would concede this case would be a lot more like Zazzle if, if in Zazzle the defendant had worked for basic boys and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think is that acronym, for a number of years, was on their payroll, designed or helped design the logo, was involved in the development process, and, and and then left the employee of Zazzle, or a, a basic, and then well, turned turn around. The strong similarity between the two cases is that the purchase itself was not a purchase from the ordinary course of business, but a, a purchase made in anticipation of litigation. It, it, yeah, and, and it's, we think sham is an ugly word for that in this context, um, and we... Well, I didn't use it. And no, no. <laughs> well, we, we don't. We think it's irrelevant in the ultimate analysis, and I think we, I think I heard that it was conceded, but we we go with Judge, um, the the judge in Mattel, who basically said, look, it's an order uh, for a product that was put into the stream of commerce. Who who made that order? Yeah, it's it's a factor, but it it doesn't somehow. Uh, turn the transaction into a sham transaction that should be disregarded by the court. It should be. It should be um, regarded by the court. Um, it, that's Judge uh, Sweet's opinion in the Mattel Inc. versus Adventure Apparel. The fact that um, sales were made to an agent of the plaintiff is irrelevant uh, because defendants' activities were purposeful, and there was substantial relationship between the transaction and the claim asserted, which is exactly the case here, Your Honor. Um, I'm past my time. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Curtis. Thank Thank you also, Mr. Brock. And the court appreciates both counsel's arguments to us this morning. We'll take your case under advisement.